Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the final verses of the Gospel of St. Matthew, um, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And uh, this is one of the post-resurrection narratives, the last of the post-resurrection narratives. And it's also the commissioning. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, for instance, we get into the 20th chapter, and, uh, and Jesus sends out the disciples um, as the Father has sent him. Jesus says, so now I send you. So they're going forth basically in, in, in in the person of Christ, they're going forth, um, in taking up the mission of Christ, which he was incarnate, which he came to earth uh, in order to, to achieve and to set in motion. Here, it's the same thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's related differently than it is in the Gospel of John, but the, but the concept is the same. It says the 11 disciples set out for Galilee, and so basically Matthew is ending his gospel with everyone back in Galilee now, and to the mountain where Jesus had arranged to meet them. If you remember um, that it says that Jesus told them to go into Galilee and that he would find them there. When they saw him, they fell down before him, though some had hesitated. And so they fell down, they worshiped the Lord, although there was still this lingering doubt in some of their minds about what is this. You can, you can only imagine. They had no, no idea whatsoever, and, and we hear that over and over again about the resurrection from the dead, and uh, they had no idea what that might mean. And although there's been appearances and there's been indications that Jesus is alive and among them, they, they still, they're, they're bewildered by it. Some of them are still bewildered by it. But then as they, they hesitated, and, and some, of the, some of the texts say they doubted. Some doubted. And then Jesus came up and spoke to them. And so once again, Jesus is there in person. He's speaking to them. We know that he has had them touch him. He has, they have, he has eaten with them. He has done everything humanly possible. Um, to impress upon them the fact that the resurrection was real and Jesus still lives. And here now he begins to speak to them as the risen Christ. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If we go back to John's gospel, we are, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So all authority has come to Jesus from the Father, and so all authority now comes from, from Jesus to the disciples. And he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is really significant because you know that in the beginning, it says Jesus has come um, to the house of Israel to redeem, to save the house of Israel. We even see, remember the story where the uh, the woman from the Decapolis, obviously a Syrophoenician, it says, um, had come up to him and he said, you know, why should we throw, you know, the, why should we throw that which was intended for the children to the dogs? And uh, and she said, well, you know, even the dogs eat the scraps off the floor. And, and he he then healed her daughter as he she had asked him to do. 
so we have a consistency, not in the, in the structure of the narrative, but certainly in the intention of the narrative. There is a similarity. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's been given to me, Jesus says. He has all authority in heaven, all authority on earth. And then he said, therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, this means now that the, that the authority of Jesus is to reach beyond Israel. It is to go outside the borders of Palestine. It is now to go to the whole world. It is the universal missionary endeavor of the church. It's interesting. Um, Pope Pius XII once said, you know, that we always think of the four marks of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Um, <clears throat> Pius V said there are five marks of the church, one holy, Catholic, apostolic, and missionary. That this idea of bringing Jesus Christ to the whole world, this is the mission of the church. This is what was handed over to the disciples as Jesus was preparing to ascend into heaven. And he does so by assuring them that they have the authority to do so. In John's gospel, it is the Father has sent me, so I send you. In Matthew's gospel, all authority has been, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So it is the shattering of the bonds of, of uh, the revelation of God to simply the Hebrew nation that instead it now is for all peoples of the world everywhere. This had, of course, already been seen in, in some of the things that Jesus had done, that oftentimes when he crossed into Gentile territory or when he went to the Samaritan woman, he was stepping outside, outside the boundaries. Um, but he never did so with the great dramatic impact that this is going to have all nations. It's going to be interesting, too, because what we discover and what we see is the disciples understood this. Um, while there is nothing, you know, we can't say, well, here we have archaeological proof that this happened or this happened. But it certainly is part of the understanding of the church from the very earliest days that, that Thomas went to as far as India, that Andrew went up into Armenia, the good possibility that James uh, went to Spain. Um, and there's certainly strong, strong uh, oral traditions that even Mary Magdalene and Lazarus went to France. Um, there's, there's all sorts of uh, indications from the very earliest days of the church that they took this seriously. And that, as a matter of fact, they did spread out over all the earth. Um, we, we know, for instance, that this is an inner dynamic, an inner working of the church. And I think I, I mentioned before that, you know, that the Franciscans, for instance, even in the 13th century, the century of their founding, that there have been ruins, archaeological evidence discovered in Mongolia of the Franciscan presence there bringing the gospel to all the earth. We know Matteo Ricci in, in China and Francis Xavier in India and Ceylon and Japan. Um, it's, it's amazing what, what the interior energy of the truth of Jesus Christ is able to accomplish in the hearts and the lives of people. And so now he's saying, this message now, this authority, this gift of my presence is for everyone, everyone. 
And uh, then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so their ministry is a sacramental ministry. Remember that in John's Gospel, he says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And then he gives them the Holy Spirit and says, the sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. And then what is it that forgives original sin? What is it that frees us and liberates us from the structures of sin? It's our baptism. And so he said, now go and baptize. Let this be the first step. Let the sacraments be the first step that, that we make in the liberation of humanity from the bondage to sin. And so it's not exclusively um, restricted to sac the sacramental life of the church, but it is its initial entry into the world, into the conversion of the world. And once again, we see this as an enduring presence in the church, an enduring understanding in the church. And some of the, the great missionary activities, certainly, we, we know uh, St. Francis Xavier, and we know that he, he heard this and when he went to Ceylon, he baptized 300,000 people, 300,000 people. And uh, after he had taught them to acknowledge the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and taught them to pray the Lord's Prayer, and taught them of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, he baptized them, and uh, then moved on to Japan, where there was a strong Catholic community up until 1945 in Nagasaki. And so he says then, baptism, sacraments are the entree into the fulfillment of the mission of Jesus Christ. It is through the sacraments, therefore, that we are to be liberated from sin and therefore saved. And then he says, um, and teach them to observe all the commandments I gave you. And so now teaching is becoming part. Once the sacramental life of the church is implanted and embedded in the midst of the, of the church, in the midst of the people, um, then you begin to teach them. And uh, you begin to explain to them what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. And you explain why you, we live that way as a disciple of Christ. That's why it's, it's, it's kind of dangerous for us sometimes to insist upon the imposition of moral values without bothering to explain why those moral values matter. And those moral values matter. Those moral values matter because Jesus himself is the one who asks us to live with him and be with him. That's what Jesus asks. And how do we do that? We see that, for instance, in, in when he says in the gospel, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, will you keep? Love of Jesus Christ is a whole person reality. It's something that keeps you um, in, in some way, shape, or form whole. It's not like, well, you know, religion is something of the mind or it's something of the heart and uh, it's, it's able to be therefore categorized. No, love is therefore of the whole person. You can say, you know, well, gee, I, I really, I feel a terribly strong attraction to this person, but I have, no I have no desire whatsoever to accommodate myself to their way of life. Um, well, that's not love, that's infatuation. And, uh, or to say, gee, I admire this person, I love this person from afar. Well, that's being a fan. 
Um, love is an engagement. It's an engagement with the object uh, that we love, and it's an engagement with the person that we love. And it's an engagement that helps us and draws us ever more closely into a relationship with the source of that love, which in our case is Jesus Christ. So to teach them, to, to teach them the commandments and teach them to live as the Lord has taught them to live is part of the great evangelical mission. It's part of the liberation from sin. If you can learn, therefore, to live in harmony with Jesus Christ, that means you learn to live in harmony with the person of Jesus Christ, and you are therefore liberated from and move away from, from the consequences, the dire consequences of sin. And then he says, and know that I am with you always, yes, even to the consummation of the world, or even to the end of time, however the translation wants to say it. And so how do we, how do we know this is what we're supposed to do? Because the Lord is with us. Because, and this is part of the, this is part of the, the dynamic of Jesus showing up in Galilee where they see him and he speaks to them. They had thought that he was dead. They had thought that he was gone. And all of a sudden in Galilee, there he is. And he is therefore with them always. And they, they began to recognize that in the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord. They began to uh, find out where it is and how it is that, he is that he is a constant presence in their lives. So when, in fact, then we see this gospel and when we begin then to know this is the ending of the gospel, and it's interesting because John's gospel ends in a very similar way, with the great commission, with I am with you, you have my authority, this is what you are to do. In John, it's a generic what you are to do. In Matthew, it's more specific, begin by baptizing him and then teaching them. And so free them from sin and then begin to instruct them. And, uh, and, and this is why, for instance, in, in, in the church, we're able to have um, infant baptisms. We know it's because godparents and parents, you know, testify and receive the gift for the child or receive the promises of the gift for the child. But once the child is baptized, immediately the instruction in the Christian life can begin. In the, it's, it's interesting that, that in the Eastern Church, not only when they baptize the infant, but they also um, give him com or her communion and confirm them. And, uh, and so that they're fully sacramentally prepared, be prepared to be raised in the Catholic faith, to be raised in the truth of Jesus Christ, to be raised as disciples of the Lord. And so baptism then, um, we have, we, we certainly know that among the Anabaptists and among many of the, of the Protestant denominations, they say, no, you should choose baptism. But that means in a way, you know, that you live the first 13, 14, 15, 20, 25 years of your life in the bondages of sin, where you're not res as responsive and as open to the meaning of the word of God that there, this is a strong argument for infant baptism. And, and we, we see it, for instance, in, in the missionary work of Francis Xavier. And we see it now also in the gospel, go and baptize all nations, and then teach them, and then teach them to observe all the commandments that I have given you. And know, yes, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Now, there is another dimension also to this particular um, gospel. 
And that is the question of authority. And then the question becomes, what is that authority that he gives them? He gives them his authority. What does that mean? Well, he gives that authority also in the most significant place in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 16, 18. He gives that to Peter. And he says, upon this rock I will build my church. And so where my authority lies is where my church abides. And so he, he, he and, and you know, there's many in, in modern, in, in modern um, non-Catholic, uh, I don't know whether maybe in Catholic too, I don't know, but, um, but where, where he says, uh, where they say, well, you know, the real founder of Christianity was St. Paul. And, and we know that in, in, the, uh, in the Protestant tradition, the, the most significant part of the New Testament is, are the epistles of St. Paul. Um, oftentimes when we, we, we can figure out when the non-Catholics accuse us as Catholics of, of not really um, uh, knowing the scriptures, what they really mean is that we, we're not able to quote the letters of Paul. We're not as well versed in the letters of Paul because we, we have a tendency to be more focused on the gospel, on the person of Jesus Christ rather than the reflection on Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we do know the scriptures, but we don't know them as they know them. And so for them, it means that we don't know them at all. Not true, not true at all. Um, I, I, do, I do recall a, a situation where a, a young Catholic man was dating a non-Catholic girl and who was always chiding him about not knowing the Bible. And they went to see the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And he knew everything that was going on, and she didn't. And she was furious afterward. How this not fair? Well, you know, he, he, the gospel was everywhere in his upbringing as a Catholic. It's in the Passion narrative at Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Um, we have the gospels every single Sunday, every single day. We have the pictures of the New Testament, of the life of Jesus in stained glass, in music, in art, and all of those kinds of things. It is, surrounds us. It's part of who we are. It's part of what we know and what we understand. That's knowing the Word of God. The Word of God is not just the printed text. In fact, is the Word of God is a person, and it is alive. And our understanding of that person is in some way, shape, or form that, that, we, that, that we then um, have a relationship with that person and in so doing then become aware of who he is and therefore become aware of revelation. That, that, rev that relationship that contains revelation is guided and, 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 in, and instructed for us by the church itself who carries the authority of the word. And, uh, and so there is a harmony between Bible, tradition, and faith. There is, there is not a disjunction. It's not says, well, the Bible says this, but I believe this, or the Bible says this, but the church contradicts that. No. When it's authentic, it's always harmonious. And if we really know the tradition of the church, if we really imbue ourselves with the, Im, embed within ourselves the, uh, the tradition of the church, we'll find that we have a much easier way of, of reading with understanding the New Testament, reading with understanding the whole Bible. 
if we, if we ignore the church's experience of that interaction with the word over the past couple of millennia, and we say, oh no, I'm gonna start from scratch, I can do it myself, think of the shallowness Think of the lack of depth that's going to go on because we haven't shared with the whole Christian community through the ages. We haven't shared with the whole Christian community through the ages that interrelationship with the person of the word who is revelation and carried it within the heart of the church all of these millennia. Well, ourselves sharing that with all of those to who have accepted Jesus Christ in their lives, all of those who have received the sacramental life of the church, all of those who have been redeemed by the Savior and saved. When we, when we separate ourselves from that whole continuity and we place ourselves kind of as isolated in time and space, we, we, we are truncated. For instance, it's like if you have a relationship with, with someone, a, a, a young man and a young woman who are dating and who are going to get engaged, they meet each other's families. Their understanding of the other person expands considerably when you see where they come from, who their family is, who their parents were, who their siblings are, what their environment. Somehow or other, you just know somebody better that way. And it's the same way with having a good friend. You go and you meet the friend's family or you go to the friend's home and, and you see a, a, whole, a whole part of them that you never saw in just your own interpersonal relationship. You can see all sorts of things in your own isolated personal relationship, but there's nothing that expands your understanding or sense of the other person, like seeing them where in, 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 their, in their setting, where they grew up, where they learned who to be who they were, where they were raised to be who they were, when the people around them and so forth. Well, it's the same way with the church. If we say to ourselves, you know, if a man or a woman would say to themselves, gee, I love this person, but I don't really care where they came from, then sometimes what happens in marriage is you find out some of the things you would have found out if you'd met their family, but you find them out too late, and you find that they're not attractive, and all of a sudden there's a crisis, all of a sudden there's a, you know, well... The, the easy thing to do is to say, well, they deceived me, or the easy thing to do is to say, you know, in, in some way, shape, or form, that they're being malicious. Whereas if you would have taken the time to know who they really were before you married them, you would have seen all this and you would have understood it. It would have had a context. It would have not been so personal. And, and, uh, and I think it's the same way when we think about ourselves in the family of the church. When we can come to know the church, when we can come to know those who are disciples of the Lord, throughout the ages, we can share with them their faith, we can share with them their experiences, and in so doing, we have a much deeper insight into the scriptures, a much deeper insight into the word of God, rather than to, we were, to isolate ourselves from all that and say, oh no, you know, only now, only in the 21st century, um, can we finally see the truth. It's like implying that the Holy Spirit had not been with the church since Pentecost, but it just recently showed up. And we can see in, in that kind of a narrative the absurdity of that kind of position.
And here then, once again, when Jesus is talking about authority, authority has to rest somewhere. Authority is not an abstract concept floating about in the air. It rests somewhere. It is seated somewhere. Where is it seated? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go, therefore, John's gospel, as the Father has sent me, I send you. It is the authority of Jesus which resides in the apostolic community. And we, going back to Matthew 16, 18, find the focal point of that in the, miss in the, in the, in the mission and the ministry of Peter. And uh, therefore, on this rock I will build my church. And so it is on the foundation of Peter that the church is built. But it is a church, and it does possess authority. And that authority is the authority of Jesus. That authority is constricted, certainly, um, f from its full use by any human being, including the Pope. So that basically the Pope's infallibility, the Pope's, the Pope's full possession of that authority exists only in, the, only in the context, in the ecclesial context of the whole church. That's why it is used so seldom. In the, last, in the last 200 years or more than 200 years, it's been used once by Pius IX and once by Pius XII to define the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, the rest of the time, um, they, we, have, we have a duty of respecting the exercise of that authority, but it is only Jesus' authority itself when it functions ecclesially within the church and most effectively, of course, through the sacramental church. So that in this gospel, then, we have, first of all, an affirmation of the, of the global mission of the church. We have an affirmation of the seat and the root of authority within the church. We have an affirmation of the power of the sacraments and the priority of the sacraments in our work of evangelization, in all of our missionary work, in all of our missionary endeavors. And we have also the obligation to teach. And if we have the obligation to teach, then we have the obligation to know what we're teaching and to know it well. We have no right to go out and teach the gospel when we don't have any idea what we're talking about or when we're simply relying on our own endeavors. Say, gee, I'm the brightest person I know, so I, I must be able, you know, to, 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 I must be the one that's really able. Has nothing to do with that. It has to do with relationship with the church and through the church with Jesus Christ, and it has to do with the truth that comes to us, not from our own inner genius, but that comes to us essentially from the heart and the life of the church as it has been experienced and lived throughout the centuries, the millennia. So this is an incredibly powerful gospel. And the last thing that it says that we should take consolation in, know that I am with you always to the end of time, to the consummation of the world. We are not alone in the struggles that we face in each age and in our own age with the particular difficulties and, and, and crosses and problems that we have. We must always remember we have not been abandoned. We are not orphans. We, in fact, have the Lord with us and we must trust in him and rely on him to navigate his people and lead his people through the crises and the trials of every age. Each age faces its own Red Sea, and each face, each, st each 
age also must rely on the Lord to guide them through it and across it, and that we arrive then in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of the Lord. So let us take confidence in this gospel, but also let us learn from it. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he sunk to